Good morning, everybody doing okay? You guys good? Good, all right. Glad you guys are here this morning. We uh, continue to work through 1 Samuel, been in this for quite a while. If you're new to the church, this is what we do. We take uh, whole books of the Bible, we work through them word by word, verse by verse, and um, just kind of work our way through as long as we have to. I I stopped in the middle of chapter 17. I, I will typically do a whole chapter unless it's really, really long, but I didn't want to rush through chapter 17. One of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible, the story about David and Goliath, and even if you're not a Christian in here, you're, you're probably at least relatively familiar with the story. Very, very famous story where we left last week. I think I actually got some booze at the like five o'clock service when I quit. They wanted me to keep going, and I'm like, well, you know, that's not, that's not nice. You don't boo people, right? But anyway, so uh, we quit halfway because it's just such a good story. Again, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to blow through it too quick. And the second half is even more exciting than the first half. But in the first half, what is happening is you have Saul, who is the first king of the Israelites. The, the, the main people we've been focusing on is Samuel the prophet and Saul, the first king of the Jewish people, right? That's who we've been focusing on. So Saul is the king. Uh, we're starting to see an old enemy of the Jewish people, the Philistines, come back and they're causing a lot of problems and they're about to go to war. So it says that both uh, uh, groups of people, the Jews and the Philistines, line up in battle formation on these two hills. And then there's a valley in between them. And the Bible says that for 40 days, this, this literal giant, he was nine foot nine, would come out from the Philistines and he would come into the middle of the valley and he would say insulting things and he would threaten not only the Jews, he would threaten the God of the Jews and, and talk condescendingly and, and just talked a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of smack, right, went out there. And one of the deals was, is he said, listen, send someone to fight me and if they win, we'll surrender. We'll, 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 we'll be your slaves. But if we win, all of you people have to be our slaves. Everyone is terrified. Everyone is scared because this guy's not only huge, he's wearing the best armor that you could possibly get. He was fully covered from, from head to toe. We'll find out there are a couple of vulnerabilities in his armor today. Had fantastic weapons, had a shield bearer that walked around in front of him. Pretty intimidating character, right? So, one day, David, and this is kind of the third major character of the book of 1 Samuel, we're introduced to him. David comes in. He's roughly about 20 years old at this time. And his task is, he's the youngest of all his brothers. He watches his dad's sheep all the time. Um, not the most exciting job in the world, probably. Watched his dad's sheep. And he would run back and forth to the battlefield to bring his brother's food. So one day, he's bringing his brother's food, right? He's there, and he's, you know, got food, and shooting the breeze with his brothers, just kind of talking a little bit. And all of a sudden, Goliath comes out for his daily taunting. And David is like, who is this guy? And, and why is no one doing anything about this guy? And he was ticked, right? He was just upset. And um, he's starting to, you know, his blood's starting to boil because this guy is disrespecting God, disrespecting the people of God. The king is too afraid to fight Goliath. So he, he says, hey, anyone who will fight him and win... I'll make him rich. He can royal, uh, marry into the royal family, never pay taxes again. That's not why David said yes, but David was like, I'll do it. I'll fight him, right? And that's where we left off. That's where we left off. We talked about last week, the story of David and Goliath brings up a, a huge metaphor. Talked about this a lot, that, that, that they're, they're going to be Goliaths in life. We're all going to face things that look insurmountable. And we talked about that kind of on a personal level, mostly. And we asked, how would we respond when there are adversities in our life? How do we respond? Do we, do we cower? Do we run away? Do we try to fight fire with fire? The Bible says not to do that, not to return evil for evil. Or do we, do we lean on God, right? That's what we talked about. This week, we're gonna be talking about much of the same things as we finish off this story, but we're gonna be talking about it in, 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 in kind of a bigger scale. What I mean is this. The world, if you haven't noticed, tends to be getting um, more divisive, more violent, more aggressive, darker, right? The world is just seems to, seems to be unraveling at the seams right now. And as this adversity continues to well up, right? And there is a, a, a very, we'll talk about this a lot today, a very unique hatred towards God and the things of God. We're really seeing a good example of that right now with all the anti-Semitism that is going all around the world right now. This very just kind of hypocritical, unique hatred towards the people of God, the things of God, always been uh, uh, aggression towards Christianity and those things. 
And we're gonna ask ourselves again, but, but as a church, as a people, how do we respond to that? As the adversity continues, as the giant continues to look bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, what do we do about that? And what are we holding on to, okay? That's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today, okay? All right, so you should've got a handout when you walked in. Everything will be in there. Everything will be up on the screens if you have a Bible. We're in the Old Testament, the ninth book of the Old Testament, 17th chapter. We're gonna start in verse 33. This is an absolutely fantastic uh, half of this chapter. It is so well written. There's some good trash talking here. I mean, it's just, it's really, really fun, really good. And um, I hope you enjoy it today. And, and if you've heard this story, but you actually haven't read the words of it, it's just, it's, it's, it's just really, really good. So we'll talk about it today. Um, what am I missing? If you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, just click on sermon notes and you should be in good shape, okay? Let's pray. We'll get into this. We'll have some fun with it. I hope you leave encouraged today. It's, it's so strange. Whenever I talk about how bad the world is getting, some people are like, man, that's a downer. I'm like, well, not if you're a Christian. We know these things are going to happen, and we know that we're going to be okay as they happen. So we don't need to be discouraged by how, how dark things are getting. Just make sure you remain in the light, right? Pretty simple stuff. So anyways, let's pray. Let's jump into this, and uh, we'll see where God takes us. Okay, thank you guys so much for being here this morning. Father God, we love you. Lord, I thank you so much for everyone in this room this morning. God, I thank you. Uh, God, it's encouraging to, 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 to see a very full room, and it's encouraging to know that people will give up their time to come and to hear the word and to worship and to take communion. And so, Father, I pray that you bless our church, God. Bless our church this morning. Not just our church, Father. We pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses, the churches in those cities. We pray that, again, Lord, as we study and as we take communion here in a little bit, God, and, and pray, uh, we pray that we're not only blessed, we pray that we're a, we're a blessing to you, God, and that we honor you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm gonna start in verse 32, which we did last week, but just to kind of remind us a little bit, and it'll roll right into, into verse 33, and we'll keep going, okay? David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him, Goliath. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he's defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and may the Lord be with you. When Saul had his, uh, then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he wasn't used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the wadi, which is like a, a dried up creek bed, and put them in his pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Okay, so after David is brought back, so last week we were talking, David is telling everyone on the battle lines, like, I'll fight the giant, I don't care, right? I'm not afraid of him. Everyone's like, okay, let's go talk to Saul. So they bring David in front of the king just to make sure that he's serious about this. And David's like, let's do this. And Saul initially said, there's no way. You're young. You're small, you don't have experience. And Saul was missing the lesson that Samuel learned that we read about a couple of chapters ago. God said to Samuel about David, right? About the same person. Humans see what is on the outside, but God sees the heart. So all the people watching this, we're gonna see that David was physically very small. Goliath was physically very big, but God saw beyond the physicality and saw that David's heart was huge. He had a huge heart and his heart was after God's heart, the Bible says. 
So this is the guy. This is the perfect guy. And so David also tells Saul that he had defended his flock before. So, so he's trying to make a case. Saul's like, man, you can't do this. You're not equipped for this. And he's like, hold on a second. I, I tend my father's sheep. We've had lions try to come and steal the sheep. We've had bears try to come and steal the sheep. And whenever they come, I, I've, I've had to kill them, sometimes even with my bare hands. And he basically says, this Goliath guy is no different than these other violent predators. I'll take care of him just like I took care of them. And here's what we learn from this. We have a tendency, because life throws us curveballs, right? We all have our, our bears and lions that we've had to deal with. And in life, we have a tendency to despise those times when we have to go through tumultuous situations. But, but in those times, and we should not be surprised by hard times, Jesus made it very clear, in this life, you will have suffering, you will have adversity. So, so what we need to do during those times is not 100% despise the tough times we go through, but learn to trust God's method for developing our character. It is going through the bears and the lions that we become equipped to face the giants. And so we need to, to know in those times or ask God in those times, God, what am I supposed to learn during this? You know, it's interesting. When we get older, we start to look back on our life and we start to almost appreciate the things we had to go through that were tough because they made us into deeper, better people, okay? They make us into people of character. If you ever meet someone, it's very hard to meet someone like this because we all go through stuff, but if you ever meet someone that's lived a long time and just never had any adversity, they're, they're typically not the deepest people in the world. I'm not trying to be mean, but they don't have a, a ton to offer to the conversation because they don't really have any, any growth experience. So we need to make sure that we appreciate those times, as odd as that sounds. So, because Saul did not have the Holy Spirit, remember that? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He lacked the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit left him. He still didn't see how David could pull this off. So he gets his military clothes and puts that on David. He gets armor, probably his armor, puts that on David, gives him his sword, which was probably so long it drugged the ground. And David probably looked absolutely ridiculous. Now, David, again, was about a 20-year-old man, so it's not like he was like, you know, teeny tiny, but Saul was a big dude. It said he was a head taller than any other Jewish man. So you had this guy's clothes that were probably sagging all over David. You know, the, the sword is scraping the ground. It probably looked extremely silly. And here's the thing, though, that we learned from that, that all of us look really ridiculous and silly when we try to live outside of who God has designed us to be. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, like once you get saved and you grow in your faith, you even look back on your own life and you're like, man, when I was trying to be something other than who I am in God, I looked stupid. I acted stupid. I did foolish things. And, and it's, it's amazing to me. We live in a culture right now that tries to find its identity in absolutely everything other than the one thing it is made in the image of. And it just looks silly from a distance, does it not? And it's destructive and it's divisive. So we are to live in what God wants us to be. If, if we're not living our, in our identity in him, we get, we get detoured. We get on the wrong track. We, 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 we look like we're not in the right place because we're not. So Saul thought that battles were only won by worldly means or methods. The problem was is this battle between David and Goliath was more than just a physical altercation. There was a spiritual connotation to this. Not only that, the people of God are to address adversity, we talked about this last week, differently than the way the world does. In, in all kinds of ways, we don't lean on our own understanding, we lean on God's, we address adversity with truth and love. And what we have seen, at least I hope you have seen, I hope you've seen this, if you haven't, it's because you're not looking. Modern culture has absolutely proven to be incapable of fixing humanity please, I hope you've noticed this. The, it, it is interesting. The, the further and further we move away from the principles and teachings of God, the more the Western world becomes post-Christian. And, and this is in every single study that you can research if you want to. Every major university study. We are more depressed than we've ever been, more suicidal than we've ever been. We have more domestic assault than we've ever had. We've had more violent crime than we've ever had. We've had more homelessness in the United States than we've ever had. We've had more anxiety. All these things. So it is odd to me 
that no one sees the fact that our way of doing things by no stretch of the imagination is working. It just isn't working. The further we move away from, from the principles of the creator, because the problem is this, the creation cannot fix the creation. Only the creator can fix the creation. But the more we move away from the creator, it's, it's no wonder that we continue to spiral. The society is just coming apart at the seams. So David didn't trust mankind's method of addressing a giant. David trusted God's strategy. Not only that, listen, this is important. David was also confident, not because he thought he had the ability, he was confident in who he was because he knew who God was. So he wasn't afraid of the giant. David trusted the weapons that God had given him to defeat lions and bears. And so God had, 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 had created a reputation in David. David knew that any adversary I face, as long as I face it with God, I'm gonna be okay. And God still gives us weapons. He still gives us tools. He still provides and still makes a way for us if we have a relationship with him. That's why we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have these things, that we can have faith and we can have wisdom and we can have discernment and we can have the different gifts with us but we have to walk in a relationship with him. The other thing is this, is when we truly understand in our heart that God is for us and not against us, the Bible says that, and if we walk in a relationship with him, God does not bring us up against adversity just for us to fail. And you guys believe that, right? God is not a God of failure. God wants us to succeed. God wants us to overcome things that are against him and his principles and his people. And when we walk in a relationship with God, we can have that confidence, okay? The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy, and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? He cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel, and you defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I will strike you down Remove your head and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. David just took the smack talk up a notch, right? <laughs> then all the world will know that Israel has a God and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. That's good stuff, man. Like, that's just, that's just good stuff. So as Goliath, I love this fact, as Goliath slowly came towards David, the Bible says two times, David quickly went towards him, quickly moved towards him. And as he got closer, as, as David got closer to Goliath, Goliath noticed, wait a second, this is a kid. Okay, now, again, they think, they think David was about 20. When I keep saying kid, one, that's the thing that naturally happens when you get into your mid-40s. You look at people in their 20s as kids. And that's, that naturally happens. The other thing is, in Jewish culture, you really weren't considered a man until you were about 30. That's why Jesus didn't enter into his ministry until he was 30 years old. You couldn't be a rabbi until you were 30 years old. That was kind of the threshold back then. So someone in their 20s was still looked at as, as very young. So as, again... David gets within kind of, kind of close range of Goliath, semi-close range to where he could see him. And Goliath goes, wait a second, you're just a kid. You're like this good looking kid, you got no armor on, he didn't have any weapons, he had a wooden staff with him. And this made Goliath burn with hatred. He was mad. Listen, Goliath was so offended and angry because of David's innocence and purity. There was an innocence and a purity about him, and that made Goliath mad, right? Am I, a, am I a dog? And he was offended. 
That brings up an interesting point, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be offensive with this. We're just gonna talk truth for a minute. There has been, there is, and there always be a, a very unique and hypocritical hatred towards God, the people of God, and the things of God. Do you, do you hear me? There's always been a hypocritical and irrational hatred. Again, you're seeing this very, very clearly, at least, again, I hope you're seeing it and noticing it with all the anti-Semitism right now in the world today. Okay, um, back in the Roman Empire, when they were uh, putting uh, uh, Roman Christians into the Colosseum to be killed, the people who staffed and manned and worked all the hospitals were exclusively Christians. But still, the Roman people hated them. For, for some, it was an irrational hatred. These are people who serve the community. They love people. They stay out of people's way. And for some reason, there was no rational hatred towards the Christians. This has always existed, and it will always exist. You need to know that. If you're waiting for like culture to turn around and, and everyone think Christians are cool, um, don't hold your breath. That's not going to happen. It, is, it has never happened. It has never been the case. And there is a very hypocritical um, um, judgment and, and hatred towards Christianity. I'll give you a good example. Oftentimes you hear people, hear people say, well, Christians and the Bible and, and, and people who follow Christ are misogynistic. They don't think much about women. That is nowhere biblically supported. If anyone ever says that to you, just say, well, show it to me in the Bible. And all throughout the Bible, it is extremely progressive when it comes to not only the equality of women, but, but the certain giftings of women. The first church started in Greece by, was by a woman. The, the first people to see the resurrected Christ were women. I mean, there's so many things on and on and on. One of the great judges of the Old Testament was Deborah, a woman. So you go on and on and through that. And it's interesting when people say things like that about Christianity, so misogynistic, they, they, they never bring up Islam in, in, in the different things that the Quran says. In the second chapter of the Quran, it says it takes two women to equal one man. You can look that up. I got one in my office, a, a Quran. It says in the fourth chapter, surah, of the Quran, that you can beat your wife. And I said in the eight o'clock service, because my translation says you can beat your wife, but you have to do it mildly, and Muhammad, who works here, used to be a, a, an Islamic imam, says the real translation does not say mildly. So, so don't say that. And, and so you have permission to beat your wife. So I find it interesting. And listen, I have Muslim friends that are really, really kind, wonderful people. I don't agree with their theology. We don't, we're not on the same page with that, but, but, but they're decent people. But the fact is this, there is this irrational and hypocritical pointing of the finger at Christianity and we neglect all these things. This, listen, that's not to mention the awful and atrocious things they do to women today in the Middle East. Things like uh, mutilate their genitalia so they can never have sexual pleasure. Awful, terrible things they do to women over there. But none of that is, none of that is brought up. Instead, there is this unique vitriol towards, towards Christianity. This has always existed, and it will always exist until Christ comes back. And the people who dishonor God threaten God's followers. In the Western world, we see this a lot. It's not necessarily with fists yet. It's with shouting. It's with intimidating words. It's with threats. But here's what we have to remember as Christians. One, we do not return threats with threats. We don't do that. The other thing is, if the threats and the insults have no truth to them, listen to me, they also have no substance or power to them. If we know the truth and if we know who we are in God, it doesn't matter what people say to you, we should be able to let that roll off and we shouldn't be provoked by it because we know it's not true. So Goliath said, I'm gonna take you down, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna feed your body to the, to the wild beasts and to the birds of the sky. And David wasn't thrown off guard by that. David knew who was gonna win. He knew who he was because he knew who God was. And if, listen, if we live in a relationship with God, we know who we are in God, and a relationship with God is a relationship of peace. It is a relationship of truth. It is a relationship of security. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter. That's the, that's the confidence that we should be walking in when people spew vitriol and hatred towards it. We don't have to return that, right? We don't have to protest their protest. We can just live in confidence of who we are in God. So David responded to the threats <laughs> with the assurance that God is not only gonna take care of the giant, God's gonna take care of all of you. God's gonna take care of this whole problem. 
He's gonna win the battle. He's gonna secure his people. So I already said it, but I'll say it again. When we are met with gossip, when we are met with threats, when we are met with slander, we, we, we must approach lies with truth and love. And we must rest in the assurance that we know, even if we do not see it in the moment, we should rest in the assurance that God wins. And if we are on God's side, we win as well, right? We should rest in that. Well, Corey, what if they kill us? I say this all the time. Then you wake up in heaven, right? And you're gonna get to see Christ destroy all evil for eternity when he comes back to earth. Guys, like we win. Go back to the back of the book periodically and just read the last couple of chapters. It's gonna be okay as long as we stick with God. And David says this. Not only is God gonna beat you and God gonna take care of all your friends, everyone's gonna know that Israel has a God. David's miraculous victory against this seemingly insurmountable giant was gonna be proof that God was on his side. Now, again, I already said this. When we look at how bad the world is getting, in, in, in every, every Thursday and Friday, I take Thursdays and Fridays off, and, and my wife and I will make like tea or coffee in the morning, and we'll, we'll go through the news, we'll get on YouTube and look at the world news and the local news, and we'll go through the news. My wife can handle about 15 minutes of that, and she's like, oh, I'm done, let's watch Seinfeld, and then we typically do that. So uh, <laughs> anyways, the point is this. When you watch the news enough, and I think we should be relatively informed, when we watch things that are going on, when we read about things that are going on, when we see culture, it is very easy, I'm sure some of you have felt this, it's very easy to sit back and go, the giant has gotten too big, right? There is a lot against us. There is a lot stacking up against us. There's no way we're going to win. But in Philippians chapter two, it says there will come a day where every knee will recognize who the true God is. Everyone will recognize it. Hopefully, we will bow voluntarily, but those who have not will be humbled. And listen, we don't take a sick pleasure in the fact that people are going to get punished. We shouldn't take a sick pleasure. That shouldn't make us happy in any way, but there is a side in us that should find some comfort that one day every injustice will be dealt with. Every evil will be held into account by the righteous judge, and that should bring us some comfort, and that should bring us some peace. I also love what David says. You come at me with swords and spears and all these weapons. I just come at you in the name of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, it's not by swords or spears that we win our battles. Listen, no matter how much talent or innovation we have, if we live in opposition to God, we inevitably fall. Doesn't matter how much money we have, doesn't matter how much power we think we have, doesn't matter any of that stuff. If we live in opposition, it's only a matter of time until we fall. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't use talents and, and innovations. Doesn't mean that God can't use money and, and influence. God can use all those things. But ultimately, God is the one who determines where the battle goes. And we have to remember that. Man, I'm really talented. I got all this influence. I got all this. Okay, God gave you all of that, and you are just borrowing it until he takes it back, right? Even the, the Bible even says that there will be no need for the gifts of the Holy Spirit and things like that when Christ returns because we're just borrowing those things until we don't need them anymore, right? And we'll give those things all back to him. So we have to remember that. The battles that are won in our life, it's because God has been gracious enough to let us win those battles. It's not just the battles though. <laughs> Man, David, it, it, he's looking at Goliath and he basically says, listen, not only am I gonna kill you and cut your head off, all of your buddies around you are also gonna go down. See, the reason why he said that is David knew, I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit or, or just his own intellect or whatever, David knew that the Philistines weren't gonna keep their end of the agreement. Whoever lost, and David knew he was gonna win, whoever lost, the, the, they would have to surrender to the other army, right? And that would have saved a lot of lives. A lot of people's lives would have been spared, and so, but David knew that they weren't going to do that, that they were gonna, they were gonna take off. So David goes, not only are you gonna die, you're all gonna die. And so David knows that God doesn't just give us the giant that may be right in front of us. God ultimately wants us to win the entire war. We have to remember 
that God is for us. The Bible says if he is for us, who can be against us? And if we live in obedience to him, we experience success, not just in one avenue of our life, but if we're obedient to him, we will, we will experience success in all avenues of our life. And I'm not talking about finances. I'm talking about real success, like a healthy marriage, healthy relationship with your children, uh, um, having joy and peace and generosity and kindness, that we can have these things if we will just relent and submit to God. Okay, it's not just one battle, it's all the battles. Now, David's about to get to work right here. This part's good too, man. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without even having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, chasing the Philistines to the entrance of the valley to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sheerayim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from the pursuit of the Philistines, they plundered their camps. David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. When Saul had seen David going out to confront the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of the army, whose son is this youth, Abner? Your majesty, as surely as I live, or you live, I don't know, Abner replied. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. When David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? The son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem, David answered. If you've been with me for the last couple of weeks, that part is really interesting because earlier on, a couple of chapters ago, it said that Saul and David already knew each other and, and Saul loved David. And here we read, it sounds like that Saul doesn't even know who David is. That's very confusing. We'll talk about that here in a second. <laughs> Let's talk more rock. I was really proud when I wrote that. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right when the trash, top, trash talk stopped, uh, the action begins and it didn't last too long. Again, I find it interesting. Goliath is strolling towards David. He's, he's huge. He has great armor. He's even got a sidekick. And he's probably strutting his stuff down there, right? Because he knows he's just going to manhandle this kid. It says that David ran towards him ran quickly towards him, grabbed a stone from his pouch, slung the stone, hits Goliath so precisely. There wouldn't have very many, uh, been very many vulnerable areas of Goliath's body, right? Hits him so precisely in the forehead that it sinks, it's, it's kind of gruesome, sinks into his skull and it causes him to collapse. It doesn't appear like he's dead yet, very unconscious, I imagine, but not dead yet because it says it kills him. He kills him here in a second. Now, slings were actually a, a pretty amazing piece of weaponry back in this time. There is a little bit of a misconception. For the sake of integrity, we have to talk in, in, in real terms. I think a lot of people grew up hearing this story thinking that it was like a little boy with like a toy and he kills this giant. That's not really the case. The first thing is, is he was about a 20-year-old young man at this time. The other thing is slingshots were a, a pretty big deal. This was essentially the equivalent of, of a sniper rifle in battle. And so many ancient armies would employ sling shooters to be on the back rows. And as battles were going on, these guys were so precise with these stones that they could hit moving targets. They could kill people from you know, 50, 60, 70 yards away. They could tag people and knock them down. And so what's interesting is, is, is this was actually a great weapon to use against a guy like Goliath. What else is interesting 
is David was not a warrior. David was a shepherd. So more than likely, David had a lot of spare time. So he learned how to play a bunch of musical instruments. He wrote a lot of songs. It's the longest book of the Bible, the book of Psalms, mostly written by David. He was out there with his father's sheep. He probably also picked up the habit of learning how to use a slingshot. He probably did this out of a little bit of boredom, probably also just to keep predators away, that he could keep away bears or lions from 50 yards instead of having to always manhandle them and, 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 and fight them with his hands. And so, listen, that doesn't take away from the, from the miracle of the story of David and Goliath. In fact, I think it really shows God's sovereignty that David's whole life prepared him for that moment, that he had this really unique talent that he learned while he was tending to his father's sheep that made him the perfect individual to slay the giant. And so he went up and in one shot, got him right in the forehead, dropped him down, runs over there, grabs Goliath's sword, which must have been huge, and beheaded the giant. You imagine if you're one of the Philistines on the hill, you're like, that's not what we expected. They take off running. The Israelites hunt them down. And it, again, it says in a very gruesome fashion that bodies were strewn all along the road from Gath to Ekron. And now you have a young man who's roughly about 20 years old. They think anywhere between 18 and 22. So, so you have a young man who's about 20 years old who stepped up and did what the king wouldn't do. And he saved his people. Pretty amazing. So he takes Goliath's head and there are many different theories. The Bible doesn't specifically say why David took his head. Again, very gruesome. That, that's very disgusting to think about. One of the theories that I think is kind of interesting is there was a group of people called the Jebusites who were who kind of, uh, who controlled Jerusalem at this time and kind of oppressed the Jews a little bit. And so when he went into Jerusalem, David, with the head of Goliath, that probably sent a pretty clear signal to the adversaries of the people of God. That if you oppose God, if you oppose the people of God, there, there are some, some dire consequences to that. So it probably sent a pretty clear message. And eventually David would eradicate the Jebusites and get them out of Jerusalem. So what's really strange about this chapter, though, is that after all this happens, Saul goes, who is this young man? And we're like, wait a second. You, it said a couple of chapters ago that, that, that Saul knew David and even loved David. So him just completely forgetting who David is, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Some people say, well, maybe his, his schedule was so hectic. Now, listen, I got a pretty hectic schedule and there's only so much capacity in my brain, but I don't just completely forget people who I claim to love, right? Who, who, who are you again? Oh, my daughter, I'm sorry, right? Like that doesn't happen even with a very hectic schedule. So, so I think the, the theory that makes the most sense is we have already learned that Saul is constantly tormented by demonic spirits. And when we reject God, listen, when we reject God, the natural gravitation when we move away from God is to gravitate towards confusion. Listen, any of you who have lived in deep sin, I know we've all lived in sin to some degree. If you lived in deep sin, we don't think clearly, do we? We make really stupid decisions. We talk about this all the time. There is an insanity that comes along with living in sin. We put everything on the line. We make stupid decisions. We don't think clearly. This is why Peter said, think soberly. Think, think with vigilance, right? Because you have an adversary. So more than likely because of the, the tormenting spirits that, that Saul dealt with, his mind was so convoluted that, that he had lost track of who David was. Okay, here's where we're gonna hang out for a minute. There's a couple of extremely simple but important principles that we learn from the second half. And again, I hope this encourages you that we learn from the second half of, of 1 Samuel chapter 17. The first one is this. We often wonder why we go through difficult situations. Like again, we, we blame God, we blame others, we blame ourselves. But if we are faithful and if we trust God's process, God not only equips us to, 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 to defeat the bears and lions in our life, maybe the smaller adversities, but through those life experiences of overcoming bears and lions, we also gain the wisdom and the maturity to know how to address the bigger things that happen in life. 
I don't know if any of you guys journal. Um, I don't really journal much anymore. I used to journal a lot when we first started the church. A lot of people come here and they're like, oh, this church has just always been big and here and multi. It wasn't. One time it was me, my wife, and, and one other guy. That's how it all started, right? And, and it was hard and we didn't know how to do things and we had to figure stuff out. I remember writing all those things down. And what happens is this, guys. When you look back and you see how God has provided for you and you see the hills and the valleys and you see the awful things that have happened, but you make it through all those things, when big things come in the future, you're not that scared of those things because God has delivered you all those other times. There's a reputation that is established and there is wisdom that is gained. And so God, we need, the Bible says in Lamentations, to not despise the days of small things. Now that's talking about blessings and good things, but I think it's important for us not to despise the days of, of, of small battles that we have to fight because they make us into better people. If, ever you, if you ever go through something serious in your life, your first reaction is not, uh, can I find someone that's never been through this? No, you go find someone that's conquered similar giants and you walk with them. It makes us deeper, better people. So listen, don't take the trials of life for granted. Ask God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to teach me during this time? Another thing we need to learn is this. We need to learn to be confident in who we are in God. I said it before, but, but, but you need to hear this because it's only going to increase. There will always be a unique and irrational and hypocritical hatred for Christianity and the things of God. And we cannot get sucked into those lies. What do I mean by that? Listen to me. The Bible says that we need to have a defense for every question that is asked of us. I'm not expecting you to know the entire Bible. I don't know the entire Bible, but I, I, I can at least know where to go to help find answers, right? So if we don't have good answers, what I'm talking about with some of this stuff is, is nowadays people will ask you things like, um, or they'll say things like, well, you're a Christian? Well, you Christians condone slavery, it says that in the Old Testament. You guys have laws for, for how you have your slaves. Now, it actually does give laws in Exodus for how we have slaves. But if you don't do a little bit of study and a little research, we get thrown off track. And this is why a bunch of young people deconstruct their faith and stop believing, mostly because they didn't have any roots anyways. But anyways, when we're asked questions like that, but we never read the word of God, we don't know how to respond and we get thrown off track by these lies like Christians condone slavery. Nowhere in the Bible does it condone slavery. Do you know what that's talking about in Exodus? That if people were poor, if people had nothing, you could give yourself over to a family for six years. You could sign over your rights to a family for six years in exchange for a place to live, for a salary. You could even get married and have kids and they were all taken care of. And in year seven, called the year of Jubilee, you were, you were, you were set free to go. Or you could stay with that family for the rest of your life. That's nothing like the slavery that people talk about today. It was essentially choosing to sign into a work contract with a family to be taken care of. But listen, if we don't read the word of God and do a little bit of work, we get thrown off track by the lies. We get thrown off track by the intimidation. We get thrown off by things like that. But we have to be confident in who we are in God. But the only way to be confident in who we are in God is to know the word of God and to have a relationship with him. And a relationship with God is a relationship of security and of peace. Listen, again, we have a whole world right now that is trying to find its identity in everything. And I said it earlier, more depressed, more aggressive, more violent, more, more hopeless than we've ever been. Because again, we will never understand who we are until we start to understand who he is. The creation cannot find its identity without knowing who the creator is. This is pretty easy stuff. And so even as people who profess to be Christians, if we are not finding our value in God, we will always be aloof. We will always be discontent. We will always be scattered. But we can have confidence if we have a relationship with him. And so simply put, our strength comes from a reliance on God. Look at this. These next two parts are very important. These words are important. Strength, wisdom, and courage are derived with walking closely with Jesus. I say it every single week, but we always need to say it. How do we get strength and wisdom and courage? We pray, we know the word of God, we obey the word of God. That's how we get strength, wisdom, and courage, okay? 
Everyone agrees with that? Thank you. All right, the next point. Jesus said in Matthew chapter six that every single day that we face has its own challenges. People were talking to Jesus and they're like, well, what about the future? And he's like, hold on. It's important to talk about the future, but you also have to remember every single day has its own set of problems. Look, if every day has its own set of problems, that means every day we need strength, wisdom, and courage. Well, if we need strength, wisdom, and courage every day, then that means we need to be praying in the word and obeying the word every single day. And when we do that, that empowers us to keep the enemy at bay and to live in freedom and to live in peace and to live in joy, but we have to have a relationship with him. So our strength, courage, and wisdom comes from a reliance on God. That's what David did. On the flip side of that, Goliath and Saul relied on themselves. Reliance on self will always result in catastrophe. Always result in catastrophe. And you and I live in an era, I hope you're hearing me this morning, we live in an era of self-worship. That's our God. In the Western world, we are not theists anymore. We believe we are the highest thing. We believe we are God. And the more we look for the creation to solve the problems of creation, and the more we turn away from the creator God, the more violent we become, the more chaotic we become, the more divided we become, the more depressed we become, the more suicidal we become, the more confused we, we become. We can't even define simple things anymore because we are so convoluted as a society, so confused as a society. Because when my emotions become more important than the creator God and universal truth, we just get into absolute chaos. Do you guys hear me? This is the world you're living in right now. This is the country you're living in right now. So what do we do? It sounds so simple. It's gonna be such an anticlimactic ending to such a great story, I'm sorry. But let's switch gears for a second. We're not just talking about personal giants today. We're talking about a giant that is coming against the church. It is coming against the people of God. It is coming against the principles of God. And, and like I said earlier, if you watch the news a little bit, if you read the news a little bit, if you just walk around and you look at what's happening in major cities, and we have a tendency to point fingers at major cities, but do you know in rural areas, you have the highest level of illiteracy per capita. You have the highest level of drug use per capita. You have higher divorce rates, even in the rural areas, per capita. So, so it's not just the cities that are falling apart at the seams, it's country areas as well. And what we see is it looks like there is this mounting giant and there's no way that good can win. We're gonna be honest in here this morning. Does it not look like that to anyone else? When you see your nation in a, in a rapid decline in every single respect, when you see the world, all four corners of the world, you see hatred, you see racism, you see division, you see lies being propagated, you see war, you see people being persecuted, you see it all over the world. And when you sit back, you're like, man, how are we going to win this? Now here's the thing, and again, I'm gonna end on encouragement, but I'm gonna tell you this. The appearance of this giant is not going to get any better. That's biblical. Everyone keeps waiting for it to turn around. It's not gonna turn around the way you think. That's actually called the apocalyptic theory. The apocalyptic theory is this, that things are gonna get worse, 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 until something happens. Do you know what that happening is? Do you know what that thing is? That's Christ splitting the eastern sky. That is Christ coming back for his people. And you know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13? He said there's gonna be a lot of weeds that are growing up. He says, don't forget, the wheat is growing right next to it. And one day Christ will come and he will separate the wheat and the weeds. We keep seeing these weeds and the weeds are very, very loud, right? Very, very intrusive, these weeds. And as evil continues to escalate in the world, do not lose heart because good is increasing as well and it's coming up to match that. And one day Christ will come back for those who have dedicated their lives to him 
and he will separate, not, not only the, the, the weeds from the wheat, he will completely obliterate and deal with evil. I, I did two funerals last week um, for both young people, very, very rough. At the second funeral I did, we were talking about how the, the last enemy that Jesus promises to abolish is death. Death is an enemy of God. And not only will all evil be dealt with, all pain, all death, all weeping, all crying, all abuse, all these things will be permanently dealt with. Here's the trick for us. In the face of this mounting giant, we've got to continue to trust in God. You have to continue to walk in God. You have to continue to pray. You need to know the word of God. You don't have to know it all, but you need to be reading it. You need to be ingesting it, right? We need to be obedient to it. We need to make sure that we are on the side of God and it doesn't matter how big the giant looks, we can have confidence, right? That all evil will fall one day. All evil will be held into account one day, but we cannot give up. As Paul says, we must finish the race. We must fight the good fight, right? That's what we must do. So, so it's very simple, but I just wanna encourage you today, as bad as it seems to get, two things. Don't stop loving God and being obedient to him. Here's a second one that's even harder, right? Don't stop loving people. Love people. Love God. Jesus made it so simple, did he not? What's the greatest command? To love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then he adds a second one, and the second one is similar. Love those like you love yourself. That's it. If we will focus on those things, however it shakes down, I promise you, you'll be okay. You'll be okay. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and maybe you're not a believer, um, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Jonathan is up here. He would, he would love to talk with you. If you got any questions, uh, anything about the church, anything about the Bible, we'll, we'll do our best. We're not afraid of questions. We love questions. There's also men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, um, please don't, don't, don't go through this alone. That's why we have each other. The last thing is, is we have communion all the way around this room. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, uh, most of the pillars in the middle of the room, there is bread and wine. And that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And everyone is welcome to take that communion as long as you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin, okay? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, what's wonderful about taking communion is we are reminded how much God is for us. God is for us so much that he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sin. God has your back, man. God loves you. God is there for you. We just have to walk with him. That's it. Father God, we love you. We thank you, Lord. I pray that you keep your hand on everyone in this room. Lord, as it looks like the world is unraveling, God, don't let us be intimidated. Don't let us get sucked into lies. Don't let us be thrown off track. Don't let us trust ourselves, God, Lord, but let us trust you. We love you, Father. We thank you. Keep your hand on everyone until we meet again. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. You're welcome to help yourself.